I, I do ask that you would pray for my wife and I. I told you this morning how busy our schedule is. And that just because we're busy doesn't mean we're doing the right things, but we are trying to do the right things. And that's further the message for our U.S. military and bring awareness to churches all around America even that do not really understand the uniqueness of reaching our veterans and our active duty military personnel uh, with the gospel and how to minister to their families. My wife and I, just because of our own involvement in military ministry, even when we first got married and out of Bible college, I was in flight school to go to the mission field and I became a missionary pilot in South America. But even as I was working on those credentials to be able to serve the Lord in, in Venezuela, for a number of years, we started a ministry for young military families uh, through Desert Shield and Desert Storm. We saw wives and husbands deploy, and uh, we were there ministering to grandmas and grandpas that flew in to take care of their grandchildren, and spouses for the first time that were without their husband or without their wife. And, and let me tell you, military ministry is a wonderful thing. When I was pastoring there at Fort Campbell on Sunday nights, we would take up a change offering for the children or for the children to be involved. And it was specifically given to missions. And the way we did it is because a military church, you have to have a lot of activities for the children. You want to give the moms a break. They've had the kids all week. Dad's been gone for nine months. We want the moms to be able to come in and just sit in church and enjoy. Uh, they will get involved as well, but we wanted them to be able to sit and enjoy. So we had a lot of children's ministries. And on Sunday nights, I asked asked them, I said, listen, I, I'm not able to go to children's church on Sunday morning and patch club on Sunday night. I want you to bring all the kids into the service, and I want us to take up a change offering for the kids. And I would sit down on the front step right in front of the pulpit, and all the kids would come in, and they'd come in from other parts of the building. They would come down the aisle, and it was really a lot of fun because they would walk in, and all of the older folks, which I am one of those now, or I'm getting there quickly. Uh, some of you said, not yet, you're not, but that's okay. I, I feel older every day. Uh, I would tell them, come ready for this change offering. And when the children would walk in the back door, they would go through the auditorium and they would collect change. And then they would come to the front. And this is what I would do. And this is why I want to explain this to you. When the children would come to the front, I, the little girls, they would all give me a hug after they put their offering in. And, you know, the little ones, they would do it one coin at a time. You know, it took a, it took a while. There's 17 verses to some of the hymns that we sang. But uh, while they were doing that... Um, I, I, the girls would give me a hug, and the boys, it was funny, if their dads were there, the boys, they were like, you know, they're not going to give a hug. They'd give a fist bump, a high five. But then when the dads were deployed, at about the two-month mark, it was amazing. I would raise my hand to give a high five to those little boys, and they'd bypass my hand, and they'd come in for a full embrace because they m missed their dad. Man, let me tell you, that'll tear your heartstrings. And that's what military ministry is. It's ministering to, to the families. My wife and I's motto is serving those who serve at home and abroad. You have to have a servant heart to serve servants. And that's our desire. But you have to put yourself out there. You have to be willing to give of yourself knowing that in two years, three years, they'll probably move away and you'll have to do it again. But let me tell you, I watched our church rebirthed as grandmas and grandpas started embracing these young families coming in and grandpas whose children were grown and their grandkids were grown, they'd start taking some of these little boys and they'd invite this wife when her husband's deployed over and they'd take the little boy fishing. 
They'd take them out on the farm and ride four-wheelers with them and just let mom swing on the swing. Let me tell you, there's no greater joy than ministering to military families. And I thank the Lord for that. And I ask you for your prayers. My wife and I have a lot of traveling coming up the rest of the the summer, not only this summer, but also in the, the fall. I was on the on email this afternoon with one of our missionaries who served in Japan for a number of years, and he said, I was just speaking to some of our guys in Japan. He said, when do you hope to go back over there? And I said, well, I've planned five trips in the last two and a half years, but Japan's been closed because of COVID for anybody that does not have a visa to live there. What that means is that's, that's two and a half years that I haven't been able to visit our guys that are on the front lines of military ministry other than through a Zoom call or an email. And uh, they've been locked down, they've been closed, they've been dealing with base closures over and over and over again, mask mandates that you and I see long ago, they're still dealing with them. And, and I'm not going to say morale is low, but let me tell you, it can be discouraging when you've been under that pressure for that long. So I ask you to pray that God would open Japan so that we would be able to go back and be a blessing and an encouragement to our missionaries who are on the front lines of military ministry. But then also we already have plans to go back to Europe uh, to be in Italy for a few weeks in September and then back in uh, Germany in November for a field conference where all of our European uh, military pastors will come together for a time of encouragement and refreshment. So please pray for us and uh, that the Lord will continue to open doors for us. And uh, again, thank you so much for your hospitality and your kindness to us. Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to the book of John chapter number 4. John chapter number 4. One of the things I enjoy about studying the life of Christ is it's amazing to me as I study a, basically a story that I've read many times. I grew up in church. I grew up in Christian school. Many portions of the scripture I, I, I memorized for Bible quizzing teams or maybe for uh, some prize that the church was giving out. So my exposure to the Word of God started when I was born and it continued very strongly until I went away into college. And then, of course, obviously as a pastor, I stayed in the Word of God. I continue to do so. But how many of you have ever gone back to a familiar portion of Scripture and you're reading it in a different season of life, in a different set of circumstances, and suddenly the Scripture takes on a different meaning? Not that the context has changed, not that the, the doctrinal stance has changed, but your interpretation of it as how it applies to you and your life at this moment of time just takes a new meaning. How many of you have ever had that happen before? I love how the Lord Jesus, even in his own life and his own ministry, could take a series of circumstances and a group of people, and he could be teaching one person one particular thing and be teaching another person something completely different, and then bring it together and tie it together in a way that only God could do. We see that in John chapter number four. John chapter number four is known for the story about the woman at the well. Tonight I want us not necessarily to look at the interaction between the Lord Jesus and the woman at the well, but I want us to notice the the secondary story that's going on at the same time, and that is the interaction between the Lord Jesus Christ and His disciples. Because His disciples did not understand why they needed to go through Samaria. You see there in verse number number 4 it says, "...and He must needs go through Samaria." The Lord had a purpose in going through Samaria. Now, when I was growing up, it was funny. There was a, a group of guys in our church and in our school uh, that, when anytime we drove anywhere, we never went the main roads. We always went on the back roads, and so we were named the back roads bums. 
Now, we weren't really bums. I, well, maybe we were, but uh, the idea was we always wanted to take the, the road less traveled. We always wanted to take maybe the shortcut. You know, when you think about this going through Samaria, it might have been a shortcut, but there was some cultural differences. There was some, some standards there with the, uh, with the uh, folks from the nation of Israel about Samaria, some rules that were in place. Maybe they were not, you know, laws, if you will, but they were certainly principles that they lived by that would have prohibited them from going through Samaria. But the Lord had to go through Samaria. And we often think that He had to go through Samaria simply because the Samaritan woman would be at the well at the very moment of time that Christ sat down, and you would be correct. But I also want you to understand he must needs go through Samaria because he was going to teach some lessons to his disciples that are lessons that even apply to us today. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. It says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. As we begin this particular story, I want you to think about it from the context of the disciples. Here the disciples, you think about who they are and where they've come from, their background, how the Lord Jesus has already begun to teach them and, and show them uh, the ways of God and how to minister to folks. And they've, they've been eyewitness to some of the greatest miracles ever known to man that are still recorded for us in the Scripture. And yet they're just men. They're normal men. They're on a travel day. Yesterday, my wife and I driving down here, we made it about uh, an hour south of Chattanooga, and we had to stop at Bucky's. Anybody here ever been to Bucky's? Okay, if you don't know what Bucky's is, it's a new upcoming phenomenon that you need to be a part of. The reason for that is they had the cheapest gas on I-75 yesterday. It was such a savings. It was 402 a gallon. That's pretty bad that that seems like a deal, doesn't it? The thing about Bucky's is you pull in and there's over 120 gas pumps there at the gas station. The line at the second Bucky's just south of Macon yesterday, the line going into the Bucky's actually went all the way down the exit ramp and they were lined down the side of the interstate trying to get into Bucky's yesterday. Why is that? Cheap gas, number one, but great food, number two. You can come out of there with snacks that you can't find anywhere else. You know why they have that there? Because folks, when they travel, they get hungry. They need nourishment. Now, when you think about that in the context of what we're reading here tonight, the disciples are just men. The Lord Jesus Christ obviously was robed in flesh. The Bible said right there that he was wearied when he sat down on the edge of the well there at Sychar. So the disciples have gone off into town to find some, what I say sometimes is hot pockets or something for the Lord Jesus to eat to kind of get some nourishment to get his strength back so that they can continue on the journey. What they did not know is why Christ stayed there at the well. Why didn't He go with them to eat? Why? Because He knew that the woman at the well was coming, and He had a mission to accomplish in her life before the disciples came back. Now let's pick up the story here a little bit later. In verse number, uh, let's, verse number 14, 
He's telling the woman, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water. Amen. Boy, aren't you glad she said that? That I thirst not, neither come here to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband, and come hither. And she answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. Wow. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that, in that saidst thou truly. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Look down in verse number, uh, I believe it is in verse number 26, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto, he, unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples. Right at the moment that he's finished what many think his only purpose is in going through Samaria, at that very moment his disciples come back. And let's pick up what he says here in verse number 27. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot. Why did she come to the well? She came to draw water. Now it doesn't matter. She's already had a taste of the living water that Christ can give. So she's left that water pot. She runs back to town. You know the rest of the story. But look how the Lord Jesus transitions from the woman to the disciples that have returned. Verse number 31, In the meanwhile, while his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Now, how many of you have ever tried to do something special for someone and then they turned you down when you tried to do it? It's a little bit frustrating. Can you imagine the disciples? They're hungry, they're weary, they're tired. They've gone into town. They've gone to take care of one that they highly respect and admire, and that is their master and their teacher, the one that they refer to as rabbi. They've gone to do something special for him. He comes back, or they come back to the Lord Jesus, and when they get there he said, I'm not hungry. Now, I don't know about you, but in my humanity, I can imagine Peter, who's known for being a little bit outspoken and telling us what was on his mind, I imagine Peter was a little bit like, what do you mean you're not hungry? Let's continue reading. He said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said his disciples one to another, if any man brought him ought to eat. Man, there's about to be a knockdown drag out between the disciples. Who brought him something to eat and you didn't tell us? We went all the way into town. I'm kind of reading between the lines, but I think you see where this is going. This is going on, if you see it here in the Scripture. He says, Jesus saith unto them, verse number 34, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. This is the instruction that the Lord Jesus is bringing to his disciples. They've come back to feed him. And he says, I'm not hungry because I've been busy doing what God sent me here to do, what my father sent me here to do. And he introduces them in Samaria, a land that the, uh, that the Israelite people would not normally have communication and conversation with the Samaritan people, certainly not a woman of her reputation. They would not have had conversation with them. The Lord is about to introduce some laws of the harvest to them that they've never been exposed to before. And that's what, something I would like to share with you tonight. We notice as we look at this particular portion of Scripture, the Lord is, has two different ways that He ministers to people up until this point. One is, is He's strategic. What do I mean by that? He had to go out of His way to minister to this particular woman. 
I remember several years ago, the Lord, I was on my way to, I was on my way to the church one morning and, 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 and probably two or three days a week I would go to Hardy's because I love Hardy's breakfast and their biscuits. Anybody here with me on that? Okay, so I was driving into the church one morning and the Lord just simply impressed me to go to Bojangles instead. Now I had a little bit of a discussion. It wasn't an argument, but I had a discussion with the Lord because I only knew Bojangles for chicken and I just can't eat chicken that early in the morning. But I said, okay, Lord, you don't put something like that on my heart for no reason. So I went to Bojangles. When I pulled in the drive-thru, and this is very early in the morning, I pulled into the drive-thru and there was this young lady that answered in this exuberant voice and personality, good morning, welcome to Bojangles, may I take your order please? And I'm like, wow, it's way too early to be that excited. But they had the right person at the window. And so I, I said, this is my first time here. And I said, I'll take a sausage, egg and cheese biscuit and a sweet tea. And, so I pulled up to the window and this young lady, I, I gave her a track. I said, my name is Brian Baggett from Bible Baptist Church. I knew if God told me to go to Bojangles, it wasn't for the biscuit. He wanted me to go there to tell somebody about Jesus. So I pulled up and I said, my name is Brian Baggett. I'm pastor of Bible Baptist Church just down the road. Uh, has anybody ever told you that the Lord loves you? And her smile on her face, she goes, no, that is so kind of you. And, and I said, well, would you like to visit our church sometime? And she said, I would love to visit your church and I'll come next Sunday and blah, blah, blah. And so we went on and I went on about my way feeling good that I had done what God called me to do. And the Sunday came and went and Jessica did not come to church. For a year and a half and some 30 pounds later, I was still going to Bojangles to talk to Jessica about coming to church. Jessica was promoted. She never did come to church. But you know what happened after a couple of months of being there? Uh, she, would, she started calling me pastor. It's funny. It wasn't long before she started saying I was her pastor. She's never been to my church. And yet I'm her pastor. It wasn't long before she moved into a, 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 a leadership position and there was another girl at the window and she would say, Hey, Jessica, your pastor's here. She's never been to my church. I would go in from time to time, everybody that worked there and everyone that ate there knew who I was and why I was there and that I was Jessica's pastor. I felt kind of like a TV evangelist, amen, but <laughs> Jessica continued to move up the ladder because she was a great employee. And then one day I go by and I said, hey, where's Jessica? And they said, she's not here. She's been promoted to manager on the Bojangles across town, which was about 45 minutes away. And I said, okay, Lord, that's not on my way. And the Lord said, no, you've done what I've asked you to do. Now wait. Well, I'm still hooked on Bojangles to this day, but a few months passed. It was a full year and a half after the first interaction with Jessica. I'd given her my card that very first day, and about a year and a half later, the, my phone rang. And she said, Pastor, this is Jessica. She still had my number. She said, I'm not doing very well. My boyfriend that you knew about, that we have a child with, he's, he's run off and he's left me and my little one, my little girl. And uh, we're just not in a good place. I said, Jessica, it's on Wednesday. I said, do you still live on this side of town? She said, yes. I said, are you working tonight? She said, no. I said, would you come to church tonight? She said, I will be there. And I knew she meant it. That night when she got to church, I... I knew what the Lord wanted me to do. I took my series that I'd been preaching and I put a big plug of salvation right in the middle of it. And lo and behold, here comes Jessica down the aisle on a Wednesday night and sat down with my wife and trusted Christ as her Lord and Savior. 
I say that because sometimes the Lord needs us to be strategic. Let me ask you, who has God put on your heart that you're willing to be strategic in reaching them for Christ? We all like to knock on a door and pluck fresh fruit, amen? Well, that person was ready to get saved. What about the one that's not ready, that God just wants you to plant the seed and, and, and plow the soil and then water the seed in hopes that one day somebody will be able to take part of the harvest? So he was strategic, but we also know that the Lord Jesus, not only strategic, we also know that he was spontaneous sometimes in his evangelism. What do I mean by that? Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. See, the Lord, of course, he had that, being the Son of God, he had that ability, but we also know that as a believer, we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God, who is the third part of the Trinity, and he still has the ability to say, Brian, See that person over there? Hopefully they're not up in a tree, but see that person at that drive through window? How about that waitress that comes by your table? It's just coincidence that she was working that day and that you're eating in that restaurant. There's no such thing as a coincidence for a believer. Spontaneous Christianity. A spontaneous witness. A few months ago, I guess it was September of last year, my wife and I were in San Antonio, Texas. We'd been on the road for some time, and it was laundry day. So we found the best laundry mat that we could find on the wrong side of the tracks, and that's where we went. Not intentionally, but it was on the wrong side of the tracks. I was like, honey, I'm staying with you. I am not leaving you here. We're going to get this laundry done. We're, we're going to get out of this neighborhood. But while the laundry was running, you know, I'm not the kind that can sit down and sit still very long. So I said, I'm going next door to get something to drink. And I walked in the door of the convenience store that's always adjacent to a laundromat, it seems. I walked in the door and I said, um, I, I said, hello to the guy. I said, how are you doing today? He said, God is good. And I stopped and I went, you're right, he is good. There are several other people there in the store. And so I, I drug my feet and got my drink and just kind of waited around until no one else, else was there. And I walked up and I said, what's your name? He said, I'm Junior. I said, how do you know God's good? He goes, well, he is good. I said, so tell me about it. How do you know about God? He said, well, my grandma, which we've heard that one before. He said, my grandma had a Bible and she kept it in the car. He said, anytime I got in trouble with my grandma, I would go sit in her car and I started reading the Bible. And he said, I started at the beginning and I'm, I'm reading it. He started off about five or six Bible stories from the Old Testament and he couldn't finish them, but he would start them. He couldn't give the names. And as he would struggle with the name, I'd throw the name out there and he goes, yeah, 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 that. And I'd finish the story sometimes for him. And he looked at me and he goes, wow, you know the Bible a lot better than I do. I said, have you gotten to the part that tells you how you can know for sure you're going to heaven? And he said, no. So in about 20 minutes, standing there in a convenience store, God had closed the door and no one else had come in. Junior came to Christ. Spontaneous. I went for a Mountain Dew Zero and I came out with a believer and a brother in Christ. See, the Lord is still doing those things. He was teaching His disciples on that day that you have to be strategic in your evangelism, but He's about to open their eyes to the fact that there are some principles of the harvest that every believer needs to understand. The first principle that I want you to see tonight, and I'm not going to be long, I'm going to go through these three principles very quickly, but I want you to see it. First of all, the spiritual harvest knows no cultural boundaries. I told you a moment ago that I was on the wrong side of the tracks. I was in an area of town that most of us would feel uncomfortable in, and yet I understood that that's where God wanted me to be at that point of time. Yes, I was, I was cautious. I've been robbed more times than I care to remember. I've been at gunpoint more times than I care to remember when we were in Venezuela, so I'm 
constantly alert. I'm looking in my mirrors. I'm watching over my shoulder, trying to maintain some personal safety. But let me tell you, the Lord, when He tells us that our the spiritual harvest knows no cultural boundaries, it means no matter somebody's ethnicity, no matter uh, their nationality, no matter their culture that they come from, they still have a soul, and that soul needs to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It might mean that it takes me out of my comfort zone. It might mean that I have to delay my departure from the store until everyone else gets out of the way. It might mean that I have to go to Bojangles when I really like Hardee's. But when the Lord is working in our heart and He's directing our hearts, we have to be willing to go and to do what God wants us to do at that moment of time. The disciples, think about it. They're out of bounds for evangelism. They're in Samaria. We don't have dealings with Samaritans. We certainly don't have dealings with the women of Samaria. Why? By law, by principle, by decree, they were not allowed to do this. Look at verse number 27 again. How do I know this? Because, and upon this came his disciples, and what? What is that next word? Marveled. What is he doing talking to her? He was sharing with them that there are no cultural boundaries when it comes to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second principle of this spiritual harvest is that a spiritual harvest has no lunar schedule. What do I mean by that? Farmers depend on the calendar to determine their planting schedule. They know if they get the seed in the ground some 90 to 120 days later, they'll be able to take those giant harvesters back into the field and they'll be able to take in the fruit of their labors and have a, a great harvest. And they plant on that schedule and everything about their routine is dictated by the schedule of the weather and the calendar. What I want you to see here this, this evening is the Lord sharing with them, Sunday's just another day in the week when it comes to harvest time. Yes, we want to bring friends to church, but what if that friend doesn't live to next Sunday? Monday's a great day to get saved, amen? amen. Tuesday is a great day to get saved, amen? amen? Anybody ever here saved on a Wednesday? How about a Thursday? There is no bad day to tell somebody about the Lord Jesus. We follow the Holy Spirit of God and His leadership, and then we, we follow, because you don't know what's going on in that person's life. A year and a half before Jessica came to Christ, the Lord put that card in her, in her hand, and she kept it. You know, I think about my father-in-law. My father-in-law got saved at the age of 33. He was a functioning alcoholic. He was a wealthy businessman there in Midland, Michigan. Uh, but he was, uh, he was in the bars every night in Bay City, Michigan. As a matter of fact, he had 40 bars in Bay City insured. Uh, so you have to do a lot of business in the bars. But you know what happened? Because my wife and her mom, her mom had been picked up by a man in the church that had a 15-passenger van that was his own personal van, and he would bring kids to church. Her mom got saved at a young age, and then later she took the girls to church with her sister. And her dad, Chris's dad, would come into the back every once in a while just to hear what was going on. And he had run the preachers off, but nobody knew that in the back of his wallet there was a track that he had folded up really small where no one would find it. And he kept it stuffed in that wallet, and one night... After being at the bar with his doctor friend, drinking, his doctor friend dropped him off at home, and the doctor didn't make it around the next curve, and he died that night. The next morning, her dad's on his way into the office. He, pulled, he, he heard about his friend dying in his Corvette that night after he had just gotten out of the car, and he pulled off the side of the road, and he pulled out that track that had been there for all of that time. No one knew about it. 
and he trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now he's been in evangelism for over 28 years. The three girls that he had are all married to Baptist preachers. Now two of his grandsons are preachers. The one, our son's a pastor up in Pennsylvania, and it all started because somebody put a track in the, in the hands of an unbeliever, and he didn't read it right then, but he put it where he'd need it when he would need it, and God used it at the right time. Let me tell you, the spiritual harvest has no lunar schedule. We rely on the Holy Spirit timing, His leadership, His plans, His schedule. He is orchestrating events that we are not privy to. I say it this way, our security clearance isn't high enough to know what God's up to. But He does give us just enough information to act on, and He gets the honor and the glory for it. Amen. The third principle, and the last principle, this is the first conclusion, Brother Andy. The third principle of the spiritual harvest is that our involvement in the spiritual harvest is determined by our obedience. Look at verse number 34, if you will. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. How many of you would say, as a believer here tonight, it is our responsibility to tell a lost and dying world about Christ? You know, several years ago, the Lord smote my heart one day as I was watching the news, and I became infuriated by what I was watching. And the Lord just simply, in, in the way that only the Lord can, He said to me in my heart, He said, Brian, why do you get so upset when lost people act like lost people? Ooh. So I said this in my prayer to Him that morning. I said, Lord, let my frustration turn to motivation. Lord, when folks who have been standing in the streets talking about their right and their body, how can I get upset when for 50 years they've been taught that it is their body, that they have rights over everything, that the unborn are simply just a hunk of flesh? They've never been taught that life has been given by God, that life begins at conception. They've, they've been listening to the, the advice, they've been listening to the philosophy, they've been listening to the tradition all of these years, and then suddenly they're faced with that decision being taken away from them, or perceived that it's taken away from them. I can't get mad at them. You know what I need to do? I need to get down on my knees and say, Lord, help me to be the one to give them the truth. Help me to be the one to introduce the Lord Jesus Christ to them. Let me be the one that introduces salvation to them. Lord, help me to be the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness saying that you need to be saved. Help me to be that person that's motivated to go out and to tell folks about Christ. He sends us to harvest. Look at verse number 36 or 35. Say not ye there yet four months and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap, that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. Here's a great, a great thought about a soul winner. When you think about the fact that you might be planting seed, or that you may be watering seed, or that you might have the opportunity to harvest seed, all three can bring the same amount of joy. Now, I don't know a single person that's saved and loves the Lord that doesn't like it when somebody gets saved. Am I right? How many of you rejoice? I mean, even the angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner is saved. 
But can we get the same joy when God gives us the opportunity to plant the seed? When we share the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we speak the truth to someone in love and they see Christ in us and we get the same joy and satisfaction from going through a drive-thru and saying, Jessica, I'd love for you to come to church and let me tell you about my Savior someday. Would you let me do that? And she says, yes. Or Jessica, has anyone ever told you about the Lord? Why, yes, they have told me about the Lord. Well, you want to take it to the next level. Or you're like my wife that night when Jessica finally came to church and she trusts Christ as her Lord and Savior. I wasn't the one to let her to Christ, but I was there to plant the seed. But who knows, maybe somebody planted a seed before me and I was simply watering it. But when she got saved, her life is changed forever. And that brings great joy and satisfaction to me. Several years ago, my wife and I, I believe it was 2015, my wife and I were visiting her sister and, and family over in China. They had they had been in a couple of different cities in China, and it, this last city they were in, Shaman, on the southeastern, uh, southeastern side of China, matter, matter of fact, only about 20 miles west of Taiwan, they were on an island. They had an underground church there, and we were visiting them. And while we were there, we went to one of the services, and there were several people standing there that are sitting there um, that I couldn't talk to. I can't read Chinese. I can't speak Chinese. I speak Spanish, so every time a Chinese person talked to me, I would answer them in Spanish. <laughs> Don't ask me why. That was, it's not English. It must be Spanish. I'm just going to speak to them in Spanish. So they would say, and I would say, oh, si, 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 yeah, claro que si, un taco con enchiladas, por favor. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of communication going on, so I'm sitting there and who were listening, there was a, about an 80-year-old gentleman there. He was about this tall, he was a gray-haired man, very well fit. You could tell he was a runner. He'd, I found out later he'd run several marathons. And I'm watching this man. He just keeps smiling at me. You know, that's a universal language. So, I mean, I was enjoying him smiling at me. He's probably looking at me going, man, he is huge. But after some time, he was speaking to my brother-in-law, and he found out that we spoke Spanish. And he asked my brother-in-law, he said, can you have them sing a song in Spanish? And I'm thinking, how's he going to know if I'm singing in Spanish? So I looked at my wife, I said, let's just keep it simple. And so we started, Cristo mi alma, mi alma, mi, tu palabra me dice así, niños pueden ir a él, quien es nuestro amigo fiel. How many of you recognize that song? Here's the interesting thing. About halfway through the song, I noticed the man's lips were moving. He was keeping up with the timing of the song, but his lips were moving. He knew the song. When I finished, he looked at my brother-in-law, who was the only person there that could understand him, and he said, I haven't heard that song since our country fell into communism. I was five years old attending Sunday school 70 years ago, and I learned that song. My brother-in-law said this to me when we left there that day. He said, all this time I thought I was planting seed. And I found out today that 70 years ago the seed had already been planted and had been laying there dormant. And today we were able to water the seed. You know, that was a great lesson for me to learn. Our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let me ask you this. Are you involved in the harvest? You might only have a little bit of time. You might only have a small plot of land. 
But when you follow the leadership of the Spirit of God, He will use it in ways that you could never imagine. And He will get the honor and the glory for it. Would you bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment?